from Tokyo, Japan, this is Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Mr. Russell Shorto will join us to discuss Descartes' bones. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokatron 5000, and your world famous question of the week, coming right up here on the Grok's Science Show. Well, the words of the renowned French philosopher René Descartes, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, still resonate in the modern world today. The changes in natural philosophy started by the Cartesian Revolution have a unique and interesting history that is often overlooked. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Russell Shorto. Mr. Shorto is the acclaimed author of numerous works of narrative nonfiction, including The Island at the Center of the World and Saints and Madmen. His latest work, Descartes' Bones, explores the history of the Cartesian Revolution for a general audience. Uh, Mr. Shorter, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, well, certainly a pleasure to have you on the program, and I think this is really certainly a very fascinating book, Descartes' Bones. It seems like it's almost two books in one, one sort of a story of changes in the philosophy from the Cartesian Revolution, and the other is a story, literally, of Descartes' Bones. I'm wondering how you come up with this uh, structure. Uh, well, it started with me first encountering, sitting in a library in 2003 and in, encountering this odd reference to the fact that 16 years after Descartes died, he died in 1650, and 16 years later, they dug him up and people began to take pieces of him. I don't know, this thought pleased me. It just, the, the bizarreness of it was just very satisfying. And it stayed with me, and I realized eventually that it stayed with me because it wasn't just that. The story, you know, this, this is a story that winds from that time to ours through the centuries with different people buying or selling or stealing pieces of Descartes and doing it with symbolic meaning attached, and that's what connects those two stories. You know, if it were just a story about the actual bones of Descartes, well, that would have limited appeal, and I probably wouldn't have written it. But because they then become, symbolize his metaphoric remains, that, that's what was interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, maybe it would be useful to know a little bit about uh, René Descartes, his philosophy, and maybe how he came about his philosophy. Sure. He, um, he was, his dates are 1596 to 1650, and they very neatly coincide with the whole birth of the modern. You know, when people like William Harvey and Galileo were doing all of their experimenting, which was seen as terribly exciting or threatening, depending on who you were, and which was a challenge to scholasticism, the the system of knowledge that had been built up over the previous millennium or so. And so that was now under attack, and yet there was no new system uh, foundation for knowledge. And the, the, the short answer to what Descartes did that his contemporaries thought was so important was he provided that new foundation. What he did was all this new work that was going on, he reoriented it around, as he said, the, the human mind and its good sense. And as you brought up the phrase, I think, therefore I am, that was the real distillation of it. You know, he sort of systematically went through every piece of received wisdom that he had been taught. He had himself had kind of a crisis of meaning. And he decided to sit and do this test and take each piece of information, of knowledge that he had been taught, 
and sound it. And if it wasn't sound, he would put it aside. And so he did that one after another after another until finally, famously, he came up with this notion that he couldn't deny that he himself, that someone was thinking these thoughts. These thoughts existed. So I, I think, therefore I am. So I, this individual human brain, that will be the, uh, the basis for this reorientation. And the impact was almost immediate among the other thinkers and explorers of the day. They saw this, they grabbed onto this as a new, a new orientation, and that made him both famous and infamous in Europe at the time. Didn't this sort of lead to a bit of a problem of dualism and kind of the notion that it could just be a disembodied mind? Yeah, dualism is a lot of people think that the, you know, a lot of people either blame or credit Descartes with uh, inflicting Cartesian dualism, his form of dualism on the West, and that's something that we've suffered from ever since, where we have this real split between the mind and the body, between the the mental, or as they would have said in the 17th century, the mind-soul and the material world. And Descartes, in the 17th century, you had to wrestle with that, and it was also dangerous territory, politically dangerous, because the Church previously had held sway over both sides of this divide. You know, the Church explanation, they explained how the planets moved and and what your body was for and what the purpose of life was. And this new work, the science that was going on, gave a different kind of explanation for a lot of that. So Descartes was one of those who came up with a form of understanding of this in which he walled off the two. He said the mind and the body are distinct from one another. And he did that in part, I think, because as a good Catholic, he was trying to protect faith. He was trying to protect it from the encroachments of science. Now, what a lot of people immediately saw, and as what happened over the course of the ensuing centuries is, as science got able to explain more and more of what was going on in the world, the terrain of faith seemed to get smaller and smaller and became more irrelevant so that atheism became a a legitimate uh, philosophy. And so the philosophy of dualism allowed scientists to explore their areas, but yet allowed the church to have their domain. That was the thinking, yeah. Mm. So being a very good Catholic, as you mentioned, uh, how did he try and reconcile his views? I think he's an interesting figure to focus on as kind of a stand-in for all of us, as like a modern figure in a lot of ways. One is that I think it's, it's up in the air to what extent he was himself a genuine, devout Catholic. And a couple of the leading Descartes scholars in the world helped me a lot when I was working on this book. One of them, the uh, American named Richard Watson, believes that Descartes was, in fact, just paying lip service to the Church. The other Frenchman named Jean-Robert Armogat thinks, who, by the way, is a Catholic priest, thinks that, in fact, Descartes was a good Catholic. I tend to agree with him. I think, for one thing, in that time, your whole orientation was theological, and I think that was the case for him as well. But what's interesting about him is he's someone who, one of those people who actually, through this great exercise of imagination and intellect, tiptoes outside of that and gets a glimpse of things outside of that which I think he found disorienting and bewildering. And so in that sense, he was kind of one of us. He was fundamentally modern. So how quickly were his ideas embraced by both the philosophical and scientific community during his lifetime and then after his death? Well, when you talk about science, it's any historian of science would say Descartes' science was pretty lousy. 
and and that really a generation later with Newton, that's when real Western science gets going. But Descartes was elemental. He was kind of foundational to that. The Cartesian method underlay the scientific method. So his importance is really, you know, it's kind of hard to see the way the foundation of a house is hard to see because the house is built on top of it. People in his day, who the first his first followers, they called themselves Cartesians. They embraced this, and you might call it science, the beta version. And they proliferated around Europe and spread it and spread the ideas to universities. And it really sort of took off, and people all over Europe began to see it as potentially a threat to the church. And at the same time, a lot of people who were promoting it were themselves church figures. So it's not a clear division. And certainly his followers uh, after his death uh, had a bit of reverence for him, and I guess this is where the story of the bones picks up. Yeah, the the post-mortem biography begins uh, (laughs) when the Cartesians in Paris decide they get the idea, because they're sort of a semi-persecuted cult who are trying to promote science, and they hit on the idea of using Descartes literally, his remains. (laughs) He died in Sweden, and 16 years later they had this idea to have him dug up and brought to Paris and they actually, some pieces were taken along the way, but the, most of the bones made it. And they then held the Cartesians, they planned this very carefully. They staged a procession across Paris that mimicked all the features of a medieval procession of saints' relics. They had him buried in Catholic ceremony. And then they held a series of banquets around the city to which they invited important figures in the church and the state, all to promote this cause of theirs. And so what's interesting about that is the story of the bones is interesting to me because of how it involves these, this issue that I think is the defining issue of modernity, which is the question of how the terrains of faith and reason, you know, how people think they, can, they overlap or they conflict. So these early scientists who are u- using these bones in a way to promote their new kind of cult of secularism, but they're using all the trappings of religion to do it. Hmm in a way, uh, using uh, ritual, their secular ideas. Yeah, ritual and using actual physical remains of a human being, which is a very ancient religious thing to do, to venerate human remains. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, actually, there's a a bit of divergence between the bones and the skull. Yeah, the the skull got, I said a couple pieces where it went missing. One of them was right after the bones were dug up, the skull was stolen. And so the skull follows its own trajectory around Europe, and the bones take another path, which, you know, once you focus on this, there's all sorts of, on this idea of Descartes' bone, there's all sorts of interesting, you know, ironies and symbols in there where, you know, Descartes is the person who credited with the mind-body split, and he has his own sort of post-mortem mind-body split where the, 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 the skull, even the skull goes one way and the body goes another, right down to... Today, the skull is in a science museum in Paris, and the bones are believed to be in a church in Paris. Hmm. Uh, You mentioned in the book a very interesting story, actually, of Descartes' skull being used to disprove some of these ideas of phrenologists. Yeah. Around 1820, the French Academy of Sciences, they're developing this. Some of the people are developing a notion that skull size and skull shape correlate with intelligence. And in particular, there's a notion that the shape of African skulls was an indication that physically Africans were inferior intellectually to Caucasians. And also that a larger brain and therefore a larger skull meant you were more intelligent. And so they would find examples of skulls of great thinkers. And they were very large and that would, you know, support this theory, which of course is a bogus theory. And around this time, the skull of Descartes resurfaces. And the, the opponents of this theory 
pull it out dramatically at the last minute. And Descartes was a very small man who has, a, I've visited the skull several times, and it's a very tiny skull. And so this kind of took the wind out of this argument, because here are these French scientists, uh, and here is the skull of their, the great intellectual forefather of French science, and he's got this tiny skull. So in a way, it was used to sort of refute bad science. So what really is the legacy of Descartes in the modern world today? Um, a couple of the early reviews of my book seemed to suggest that I was my, my purpose was to argue for Descartes as opposed to someone else as the most important modern figure. And that's not what I was doing at all. What I was doing is keying on this as a, to me, pleasingly eccentric way of looking at modernity itself and its development and its strengths and weaknesses. And I think what that impact is, is in our development, certainly, of science and of democracy. These two things that are built on, I mean, you can trace all the way back to Descartes' I think, therefore I am, and this orientation of reality and of knowledge on the individual. And then that has consequences in government and in science. Uh, how much better do you think we are today at sort of reconciling both faith and reason? I think it's exactly the same, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. I think it's it's still a mess. And I but what's what's interesting now to me is you know I hit on this idea in 2003, which wasn't that long after September 11, 2001, and at that time, if you'll recall, a lot of people were feeling well. It seems like Western values are under attack, and you know oh by the way, what are Western values? And so I think this was my way of asking those questions, kind of revisiting the, the modern centuries. And I think that from that time until now, there's been this rise of fundamentalisms in the world, in, in you know, Muslim and Christian and, and also kind of secular atheist. And I think if you, as you look at the modern centuries, you see that it wasn't just a case of these two forces continually at war with each other, that there's also kind of a middle path, a middle a sort of moderate secularism that says the secularism doesn't necessarily line up opposed to faith, but rather it argues that part of the job of reason is to try to incorporate the irrational into its understanding of things, because reason isn't a template that fits over everything, either in the human being or in, in the universe. Hmm. Certainly a lot of advancements in, for example, neurosciences would argue that maybe a lot of these ideas of dualism are quite in and that would sort of drive more separation between secular ideas and faith-based ideas. Yeah, well, I don't know that it does. Now, I think that most people in neuroscience and consciousness studies and philosophy would say that that certainly Cartesian dualism is really uh, antiquated and that somehow or other, and how you get into that is where it gets very complicated, it, it's all one. But I think there's a difference between saying that and saying you, if you can prove or show that the material is the basis for things, the difference between saying that and saying, therefore, religion is bogus enterprise any more than, I mean, by the same token, you could say that art is a bogus enterprise. So I think there's a kind of a logical flaw there. Mm -hmm. So it's really still a struggle today. <laughs> still oh, yeah, a struggle. The struggle. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 when you look at it over the centuries, it's just the same thing that we've been uh, wrestling with for centuries. <laughs> well, it looks like we are running slightly out of time. I'm just curious if uh, maybe you have some final words on this whole story. Well, I, I think that the human physical self is a, an object of interest and veneration for all this time. And Descartes himself, he saw himself as a man of medicine. So once again, you know, there's this kind of dichotomy where we see him as this ultimate abstract thinker, and he saw himself as focused on the body, as doing dissections and trying to understand the brain and the eye and how it works. So, I mean, this kind of split between those two things kind of continues in us and goes through history and even in a figure like him. Mm -hmm. 
Well, it is certainly a very fascinating book. The new book is called Derek Cart's Bones. And uh, Mr. Shorto, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks. It's been great. And you were just listening to Mr. Russell Shorto discussing Descartes' bones. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So, stay tuned. We took a back road. We're gonna look at the stars. We took a back road in my car. Down to the ocean. It's only water and sand. And in the ocean, we'll hold hands. But I don't really like you. Apologetically dressed in the best. Put on a heartbeat high. Without an answer, the thunder speaks for the sky. And on the cold, wet dirt, I cry. And on the cold, wet dirt, I cry. Don't you want to come with me? Don't you want to feel my bones on your bones? It's only natural. All right, uh, ready to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. Today's game is called Cogitating or Comatose. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they're cogitating or comatose and a little reason why. Mr. Shorty, you ready to play the game? Uh, sure, if I, provided I win an enormous prize, yeah. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, we're public radio, so we have no, <laughs> we have no money. <laughs> okay, here we go. Person number one, Steve Jobs. Cogitating. Well, I think that's all he's doing is cogitating. I don't. Uh, if he's, if, if there's any way in which he's comatose, then it escapes me. <laughs> uh, I'm ready for them to put his brain in a box and just have that as the computer. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Number two is the pop starlet Britney Spears. Uh, well, I'll just I'll go against the grain here and say cogitating. I think she's she's she could be seen to epitomize the human condition. She's struggling against impossible odds. Okay. <laughs> uh, number three is the talk show host Jerry Springer. Oh, okay, I, I'll go the other way and so, say comatose because see, I, I don't see the point of it. I, I, I am inclined to, to give more credit to Britney Spears. Okay. <laughs> uh, number four is the famed linguist Noam Chomsky. Ah, uh, cogitating. He's the ultimate cogitator. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to understand what he's cogitating. Well, that's but... you know that's uh, you, that's because you just have to cogitate more. I think. Right, again. <laughs> All right, and finally, uh, person number five, cogitating or comatose. It's the outgoing president of the United States. Oh, <laughs> somehow I knew he was going to be one of those. <laughs> uh, George um, Bush. <laughs> I gotta say comatose. Completely comatose. Flatline. Hopefully it won't be comatose in the White House much longer. <laughs> right. right. Uh, all right. Well, Mr. Shorto, I do want to thank you for sticking around, playing the game. And I'll give you my address. You can send the prize. All right. Very well. <laughs> all right. Thanks. Uh, of course, the new book, again, is uh, Descartes' Bones. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks. It was fun. All right. Thank all you. Right. Bye. I would just like to conclude today's program on a very personal note. My graduate mentor and very close friend, Professor Jeffrey Weiner at the University of California at Berkeley, passed away this Tuesday very suddenly from cancer. Jeff was very well respected in the neuroscience community as one of the top neuroanatomists in the world. His attention to detail, his meticulous care in everything he did, and his illustrations which crossed beyond mere science into art, he more than anyone really captured the beauty of nature. As a scientist, Jeff was formidable, 
His extensive working knowledge of the human brain was awe-inspiring. But those of us who knew Jeff admired him because of the type of person he was. Jeff was extremely generous in all the ways that mattered. Anyone who ever met Jeff fell instantly in love with him as a person. His office hours were always completely packed with students. The students would spill out into the hallways, literally, hanging on his every word. I've never seen anything like the type of admiration and affection that he was able to draw from his students. I spent five years with Jeff as a graduate student, and what I think I'll remember most about Jeff is his sense of humor. And I think most people would agree with that. Because to become a professor at Berkeley requires such intense training that by the end of it, a lot of people become divorced of their humanity. But this was really not the case with Jeff. He saw beyond the farce of so many things in life, and he was able to make light of it. I believe Jeff's best years were yet to come, and he was reaching the heights of his powers as a scientist at a time when most began to decline. And it's really tragic in many ways that he's gone too soon. But Jeff lived a very fulfilling life, and I know that he would like us to celebrate the time that he was here with us rather than mourn his passing. Jeff was more than a mentor to me. He was my friend, brother, father, teacher, all rolled into one. I'm going to miss him so dearly. Jeff loved classical music, so today we're going to close with Vivaldi's Luke Concerto. Jeff, this show is dedicated to you, and I know wherever you are, you're going to keep on grokking. Jeff, I'm going to miss you so much. 